I'm Janet Forrest, and this is the Nantucket Athenaeum Podcast. In this season of the podcast, my colleague James Greeter and I are going to take you on a journey through time. You'll find out about the faces and frivolities that graced, or maybe disgraced, the stage of the Great Hall. You'll meet musicians, lecturers, and illusionists, some of repute and some, well, not. Who were these folks that made the long 30-mile trek to Nantucket, and how were they received by the islanders? Welcome to Tonight in Athenaeum Hall. This is Episode 7, Henry Clapp Jr., Part 3. When we left off, it was March of 1859, and Henry Clapp had began holding court for aspiring writers and artists in the basement of a Manhattan beer hall. So the crew that began to gather at FAST was an ever-changing group of journalists, painters, poets, and just general hangers-on once the place became popular, who were all desperately trying to get a prized seat at Clapp's table. He was ensconced in this little alcove that was actually underneath the sidewalk. Imagine like a booth seat. And he was at the far end, and then there would be people around the table in this really cramped, tiny little space. And then there was the larger cellar beyond that where everybody else was waiting to try and get into this spot. If they could, but you had to earn your seat there. Competition was fierce to get a seat at the table. So every day toward nightfall, Faf would escort any unwary patrons who were sitting in the vault. He'd say, come with me, please, in his thick German accent, and take them to some other part of his restaurant. Clapp took his seat at the head of the table, and the initiates appeared, and presently, as one participant described, there was as good talk around that table as took place anywhere in the world. And that was in part because of Clapp. Clapp ruled the conversation with an iron hand. He used biting wit and sarcasm as his method of control. Again, not too different than his other behavior, but it seems like here he'd found a way to implement it without really upsetting the people he was talking to. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sought out the abuse that he was giving them. Not that I think he was necessarily overly abusive, just that if you, you, know, you didn't want to slip up in front of Henry Clapp, Part of the part of it was that he was called the old man. He was like twice as old as most of the companions in the room. One of them described him as witty, cynical, and daring with a certain kind of magnetism that drew and held people, though neither his person nor his manner would be what was called attractive. Just to paint the picture, he was small of stature, a bit haggard in appearance from hanging out in basements and smoking pipes and drinking coffee and beer all day long, but with piercing blue eyes that seemed to be staring at you through this haze of uh, the smoke from his pipe and the steam of his coffee. His voice was very thin and cutting. It sounded a bit like a creaky gate. And when he was talking, or other people were talking, he would often try to ride roughshod over them in conversation. You really had to fight to keep your seat at the table. And there was always plenty of competition waiting to get in if you could not cut the mustard, so to speak. It was kind of a 19th century version of the later Algonquin Round Table, where you saw writers in the 20s and 30s gathering together and sharpening their wit through verbal jousting. It's almost like he finally found his venue. It really is. He, he found the way to combine, I think, the two things that he valued most, the social issues that he'd been involved in or interested in since 
perhaps even as a kid with the, under the influence of his father, along with the what we now call a bohemian lifestyle of Paris, he was able to combine those two things in one activity, and he ruled the roost over the whole thing and controlled everything that went on in this space. So yeah, I think he really found his place. Yeah, he literally time. and figuratively positioned himself so that he can't get thrown out of the argument and he's the one deciding who gets to stay in. That's an excellent point. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think that made a big difference perhaps to Clap in terms of his feeling of security in that place, like you say, where he was in control of the situation and was not left to the mercies of others to decide his fate. Mm-hmm. So among some of the regulars that were there at the table, and there were more than just this, but this is just kind of a highlight. I mentioned Ada Clare, who became very famous on the New York stage. The novelist Elizabeth Drew Stoddard, who was a regular contributor to Harper's Bazaar and the Atlantic Monthly. Poet, diplomat, and travel author Bayard Taylor. Fitzjames O'Brien, who was a journalist. And Ada Isaacs Mencken, who was quite a character. She was the highest earning actress of her time in America. She was best known for her performance in the play Mazeppa, which had a climax that featured her apparently nude and riding on a horse on stage. So (laughs) she was an actress that had a bit of a, you know, I guess maybe more modern audiences you might think Mae West, Marilyn Monroe, but it was almost scandalous. Even though she wasn't actually naked, she wore like white long johns. Basically, in the pictures you can see she's not actually nude, but nevertheless, it was close enough, I think, that it uh, scandalized some of the audiences, or at least people who had heard about it. One of the other ones who was often there was a man by the name of Charles Farrar Brown, better known under his stage name, Artemis Ward. And he was apparently the very first stand-up comedian. He invented stand-up comedy and would perform in clubs, just like modern stand-up comics do, along with writing books and travelogues and things like that to support himself. But the best known, at least today, regular of the vault was a minor poet then living at home with his mother by the name of Walt Whitman. In fact, Walt Whitman credited Clapp with his future, basically. He said, to understand Walt Whitman, you need to know about Henry Clapp. So there are all these folks who are surrounding him, not only would provide the grist for his daily discussion mill, Many of them would go on to write for Clapp's Saturday Press, so many so that the paper was jokingly referred to by many as the house organ of faffs. <laughs> it's almost like this was one long, ongoing job interview. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> you, Yeah, you, if you earned your place here, you might get a, be able to get a spot on the paper. Clapp's Saturday Press was his New York answer to Atlantic Monthly. Clapp apparently intensely disliked Boston which at the time, you know, is the Athens of America, was the literary hub and the Atlantic Monthly and the Saturday Club would meet there. You'd have folks like Hawthorne and so forth who would meet in very staid environments and townhouses in Boston. It was a very patrician kind of publication at the time. And Clapp wanted this to be his more sort of um, working class answer to that. But it didn't last very long. It ran from October 1858 until December of 1860, and then was briefly revived in 1865, but only lasted about a year or so, maybe half a year. But during that brief window, the press was a showcase for a variety of irreverent, playful, and socially savvy literary and artistic productions. It focused on literary and theatrical arts, as well as commentary on current events. 
And in order to secure the best writing he could, Clapp made a conscious effort to include works by women writers. In fact, he gave Ada Clare a weekly column titled Thoughts and Things that she used to discuss a range of topics from women's rights to the status of the American theater. Clapp would often champion young writers, and no one benefited more from that support than the previously mentioned Walt Whitman. It's hard to overstate the effect that that had, the regular publication of his poems in the press had on Whitman's career. Between December of 1859 and December of 1860, Clapp published 11 of Whitman's poems and printed over 20 reviews of Leaves of Grass, which at the time was seen as a failed publication and pornographic. So again, it was a bit of a scandal to talk about it at all or write about it at all in glowing terms, no less. And Clapp did it repeatedly because he believed that strongly in Whitman's literary talent. It's very interesting to me that he had spent so much of his early life kind of alienating people and doing what he thought, regardless of the consequences and how people might stop talking to him. He might get thrown in jail, who he hurt. He didn't seem to matter too much to him because he's like, well, I'll just move on. Mm -hmm. And here he found a place where he doesn't seem to do anything but just lift other people up based on his opinion of how valuable they are. I think that that's, that's right. I think, yes, I think that he... um whether the because he felt more secure in his environs at that point or was simply more mature it does seem like as you said i think he was spending more time individually helping people rather than trying to promote a particular cause and by doing so in his own particular way upsetting the other people in that movement but a much more positive effect overall on i think everyone around him even as it must have been un, at times miserable to be at the receiving end of his withering sarcasm as you're sitting there at the table, <laughs> if you say something that he didn't particularly care for or disagreed with. So even as this was sort of a new leaf on Clapp's part, lifting people up rather than maybe tearing them down incessantly within the movement, there are some things that hadn't changed. For example, Clapp was never good with money. There was a common practice, apparently, in the publishing industry to receive advertising dollars from a book publisher in exchange for a favorable review of one of the publisher's books. One might argue that would be outright bribery. At the time, it was sort of the sort of the standard of the industry. This commitment to editorial independence was in line with his bohemian ethic, but was not great for his bank account. And poor management practices and a lack of hard-nosed business skills also contributed to the troubles that constantly plagued the paper. Uh, people talked about not getting paid. Writers that had submitted works had not gotten paid. And Clapp, and more particular, his co-publisher, had a fondness for just kind of walking in and taking the receipts of the day out of the box and using that to go drink. So um, <laughs> the paper was not destined for a long shelf life, basically. And by December of 1860, the Saturday Press had run completely out of money and ceased to publish entirely. And that was not only the end of the Saturday press, it corresponded with the fracturing of that bohemian group at FAFS. It was a very short-lived time that all of these people were together in this one place. The Civil War, in many ways, with a lot of folks, disrupted everything, of course, including the, the vault at FAFS and the various members were sort of scattered to the four winds. Fitz James O'Brien left New York and he went and fought and died for the Union Army. Whitman moved to Washington, D.C., 
where he volunteered as a nurse in army hospitals tending to the wounded there. Henry Clapp and Ada Claire stayed in New York and they continued to work in publishing and writing sporadically for other publications like the New York Leader. And so he struggled along as he had before. He had the, the press as his organ, but he was kind of on his own now and didn't really know what to do or where to go. He would wander the city, but eventually was able to scrape together enough money resume publication of the Saturday Press. William Winter, who was serving as assistant editor of the press at the time, Clapp wrote glibly in the editorial of the first issue in 1865 that the paper had stopped in 1860 for a want of means, and now it has started again for the same reason. So essentially, we didn't have money, which is why we stopped. We don't have money, which is why we're doing this again. (laughs) Um, But he wasn't any better at it this time. In less than a year, the press had permanently closed its doors. William Dean Howells, who was editor editor of the hated Atlantic Monthly at the time, sniped that when the press was revived, it was without any of its old bohemian characteristics except that of not paying for its material. But in spite of that denigration and the short-lived time period that this uh, second incarnation of the press existed, Clapp managed to introduce another future American icon to his readers. So we already have Walt Whitman, among others, who were there at FAFs and who he championed. Now here comes this nearly destitute former journalist in 1865 named Samuel Clemens, he spent, who had spent three months in the California mining camps of Jackass Hill and Angel Camp. <laughs> and there he heard the famous or the story of the famous jumping frog a story that launched his literary career. When he returned to San Francisco, Clemens received an invitation from Fafian regular Artemis Ward, who I mentioned before, the stand-up comic, who asked Clemens to contribute a sketch to his upcoming travel book about the Nevada Territory. The story arrived too late to be included in that volume, but the publisher forwarded the submission to Clapp, who published it in the Saturday Press in November of 1865 as Jim Smiley and his Jumping Frog. It was immediately reprinted in newspapers and periodicals across the country, and Clemens, or Mark Twain as he's better known, his first short story, The Celebrated Jumping Frog of Calaveras County, launched his career, and that was entirely because of his connection to Henry Clapp Jr. Clapp continued to write for other publications after the press folded, but by 1870, he'd taken more solace in drink, And during his final years, he spent a number of untold stints in asylums around the city. As Clapp shambled around Manhattan, he was sometimes spotted by one member or another from the old Faf set, who would be shocked at his haggard appearance. He died on April 10, 1875, of pneumonia in a charity hospital. Whitman described his passing, saying he died in the gutter. Drink took him down. The INM marked his passing in the April 17th edition of the paper. In traditional Nantucket fashion, we put ourselves at the beginning of this, so in spite of all of his literary accomplishments, they referred to him as one of the Nantucket boys who made the cruise on Admiral Sir Isaac Coffin's brig, the Clio. It's always what they remember you for back at home. He was described in the INM at that point as a, a man who had had a brilliant intellect and sparkling wit, a ready and racy writer. For bright sayings, both funny and sarcastic, he has had few equals. So... He's now lying unclaimed and unloved in the morgue of a charity hospital in New York, but not forgotten by his former friends. Another Fafian who was named George McWaters called the literary policeman because he owed his career on the police force in New York to his friends at Fafs. 
He arranged for the transport of Clapp's body home to Nantucket aboard the steamer River Queen, which flew its flag at half-mast in his honor. Clapp's remains arrived on, on island on May 25th and were carried from the boat to the burying ground immediately on their arrival, according to the paper, accompanied by a committee representing many acquaintances of Clapp from New York, led by McWaters. A granite monument was planned for the grave with an epitaph written by William Winter, the former associate editor of the press, who went on to become a well-known biographer, essayist, and poet. The stone was going to be a gift from Winter, Stephen Ryder Fisk, a journalist, playwright, and theatrical manager, Charles Delmonico, the restaurateur who founded Delmonico's Restaurant, and George Butler, a theater critic and writer. All of them were regulars at Clapp's table at Pfaff's. Following the interment, uh, Charles H. Robinson, who's a local builder here on Nantucket, you might know him from the, he was the sort of the creator of the new Scotland of the 1870s and built the footbridge that's out there that still mm -hmm. exists. He made several drafts for a monument that he sent to the friends of the late Henry Clapp Jr. in New York, and they were expected to select one of the designs, but soon after that, learned that it was not to be, because apparently uh, some family members had an objection to the epitaph that was proposed for the stone. It had been published in a, an edition of the Inquirer and Mirror, and apparently somebody had seen it and felt that he didn't care for it, so they said they didn't want to have him buried with it. When the relatives objected, both his parents had died shortly before Clapp had, there was nobody else to speak, and so they simply did not build it. They returned the money that had been gathered to build this monument to the people that had donated it, other journalists in New York, some of whom had never even met Clapp but knew of him by reputation. And so he was left buried, as the newspaper said, our talented townsman bids fair to rest in a grave, unwept, unhonored and unsung, which is a very bohemian ending. To this day, he lies in the cemetery with no stone there. He's in the same plot as the rest of his family. He's there with his mother and father and his sister and her husband, Augustus Morris, are right next door, but there's no stone to mark Henry Clapp Jr. In a way, it's a little bit of a familiar story of it's really easy to look back on people's lives and see their highs and see what they did and the big life they lived, but essentially he died alone. Yeah, yeah. And I think the epitaph really, I think, gets to the heart of the man himself. He was such a a complex figure filled with a lot of contradictions. And that line in particular about him, about how he made a happiness he could not taste, he as you had mentioned, did so much to lift other people up and to promote their works, but it was never able to seem to garner any benefit of that for himself in a way that would secure him for posterity. And that even at the time, people recognized that he was a bit of a tortured soul, even as he was possessed of this great talent that really deserves to be better recognized today than it is. If he were alive today, if he were a contemporary, what do you think he'd be doing? Oh, good question. I definitely think he would be on social media. Um, <laughs> Influencer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That seems kind of right up his alley. That's a good question. I think that it depends on what time of his life he were sort of plucked out of the past from. I think that by the time that we're talking about him at the vault at Fafs, he's a very different person 
than he was earlier when he might have gotten more involved in some of the social movements that are still existing today that have not yet achieved their final goal. But I think he would have he would have been able to carve a a niche for himself in the sort of social commentator kind of role, maybe an occasional gig on CBS Sunday morning, perhaps something of that sort, because he definitely had that literary bent with that bulldog sort of tenaciousness as well as being uh, very acerbic and cutting. So I, I think he would have probably had a number of roles that he would have played and done a number of different things just as he did at the time, because there, it seems like there was no one thing that defined Henry Clapp Jr., we don't have to include this, but I'm going to ask. At the beginning, you said, you know, when you look into someone, you start seeing yourself in them. What parts of yourself do you see in Henry Clapp? I think I see the tension of the contradictions within the person. I think I see, identify with his aspirations, but also recognize some of the challenges or limitations of his own personality that kept him from being able to further himself in those. And I, I kind of identify with that in that I don't, not being a very social person, it's hard to get involved in social movements, even as you believe in them and, you know, espouse their causes. Also, I think his, I think his addictive nature, I definitely identify with that as a recovering alcoholic. Uh, and it just fascinates me that he went from one extreme to the other. It seems like no matter what he did, he was radical in his actions for better or for worse. One last question. What do you admire most about Henry Clapp? I think I admire his fearlessness. He did simply did not care what other people thought. I don't mean in the sense that he didn't value their opinions, but that he just spoke his mind without fear or favor. And, you know, there were repercussions of that, but that didn't stop him. I guess being true to thine own self, maybe in some ways, even as he was trying to figure out what that self was and that would evolve over time. Uh, he was just constantly trying to reinvent himself and find himself as part of a larger movement. And so I can also kind of identify with that as well. James is investigating how to finally have a marker placed on Clapp's final resting place on Nantucket. As we wrap up the final episode in this season, it's hard to reconcile how a man with so much talent wit, and influence, ended up dying a lonely and impoverished death. The epitaph that was written for him, but never etched into a gravestone, captures this sentiment perfectly. Here rests Henry Clapp Jr., journalist, satirist, orator. In early manhood, he was a worker for religion, temperance, and the slave. In later years, he was acquainted with grief. Born at Nantucket. Died at New York, April 2nd, 1875. Figaro. Wit stops to grieve and laughter stops to sigh. That so much wit and laughter e'er could die. But pity, conscious of its anguish past, is glad this tortured spirit rests at last. His purpose, thought, and goodness ran to waste he made a happiness he could not taste. Mirth could not help him, talent could not save. Through cloud and storm he drifted to the grave. Ah, give his memory who made the cheer and gave so many smiles a single tear. 
This stone, the gift of many admirers of original character and talent, was erected here by William Winter, Stephen Fisk, Charles Delmonico, George H. Butler, and George S. McWaters, representing the friends of Henry Clapp in the city of New York. This has been a production of the Nantucket Athenaeum. It was hosted and edited by me, Janet Forrest. Special thanks to Reference Library Associate James Greeter for his knowledge and research. Please check the show notes for more information and references. You can find all the previous episodes of this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. Please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have an idea for what we should talk about next, send us an email at jforest at nantucketathenaeum.org. The Nantucket Athenaeum is located at 1 India Street in Nantucket, Massachusetts. We would love for you to stop by. You can find us online at nantucketathenaeum.org or search at Nantucket Athenaeum on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening. And if you love this episode, share it with a friend.